The music is Hymn to Freedom, a jazz anthem from the late Oscar Peterson, a prolific composer and consummate jazz pianist. He passed away in 2007. I'm Jack Dawes. According to Peterson's autobiography, his dad was an American serviceman who served in World War I and later moved to Montreal. Our way of ushering in Remembrance 2019 from your friends here at The Rock. We begin the hour with the man who solved the great World War II mystery. Why did so many die or be taken prisoner on the French shores at Dieppe, August 19, 1942, a time when the war wasn't going well for the Allies? Writer, historian, teacher, and former member of the famous Black Watch Brigade, David O'Keefe, spent 17 years of digging, eventually to confirm that, yes, author Ian Fleming, he of the James Bond fame, had been part of the strategy and actually was on board a destroyer taking part in the raid, officially known as Operation Jubilee. It seems to me as I read the book that there are a lot of maybe aha moments for you. Now, you're a historian, you're, uh, you, you teach, you've do, you do documentaries. What, what was the point when you said, oh, there's a book here I've got to do? Can you tell me about that? Well, I guess, you know, being a Canadian military historian, you can never get away from Dieppe. And it was one of those things that, uh, to be honest with you, I never thought I'd be writing a book on Dieppe. And uh, as a matter of fact, I wanted to avoid it like the plague. Um, but every time I did anything else in Canadian military history, I always came back to Dieppe. You were always measuring everything by Dieppe. So, you know, if you were writing something about Normandy, it was the Battle of Barrier Ridge was the second worst day in Canadian history next to the raid at Dieppe. And then finally, um, well, I guess my journey started uh, in earnest in 1995 when I was uh, working for the Canadian government and I was overseas doing some research. And at the end of the day, I was at the British National Archives and decided I would do a little bit of my own. And I ended up coming across a newly declassified report on a commando unit that I had no clue existed. And um, when I started reading through it, I was absolutely shocked because this commando unit, which was raised specifically to steal or pinch, as the British would call it, anything to do with the Enigma, the famous Enigma machine, that this unit made its debut at Dieppe and apparently did not reach its target. So for the first time in the history or the historiography of the Dieppe raid, I now had a document sitting in front of me that connected one of the greatest secrets of the war, the code-breaking effort, which was known as Ultra, to the darkest day in Canadian military history. And that's where it all began. And about uh, when was that? That was in 1995. And the research process took about 16, 17 years to unfold, mostly because uh, the document I was working off of had been ultra-secret classified, and then all the ancillary documents around it took a long time to declassify. As a matter of fact, it was kind of like, and I've said this before, it was kind of like a jigsaw puzzle where you have you know, one or two real juicy pieces in the lid, but you can't really make a full, you know, you can't really understand the entire picture as of yet. But every year, new de- declassifications came out, and it was like putting extra pieces in the lid. And then finally, the picture appeared. So, was I correct? Were there quite a few aha moments in that process? There were. There were. There were a lot of them. I mean, the first one, of course, was realizing that the commando unit, which was raised to do what it did, was actually at the app. That, that was uh, incredible. 
there was something else in the document, too, that it said um, no raid should ever be laid on specifically for the purposes of this unit. Uh, all raids have to be made to look like they are normal operational objectives. And I, I was stunned by this, and I thought, is, am I really reading what I'm reading? Could this be true, that they would actually put on a, a raid to be able to get this commando unit to its target and cover it up? Well, <laughs> I didn't, you know, I thought about this, and I thought, okay, well, this needs to be tested. There's the hypothesis. And, um, and then, frankly, over the next 17 years, that's what I was testing. And I was attempting at all turns to eliminate this possibility, to rule it out. And as the evidence kept mounting, uh, eventually I couldn't. Um, and I had to accept the findings that, yes, that's exactly what they were doing. So the the pinch raid, uh, again, just you, you mentioned it, but maybe just explain mm -hmm. a little bit more what that concept is about. Well, the idea is that in this particular case, it was the British. The British had come up, and they'd been doing this before. This was another aha moment that I discovered. They'd been doing this since 1941, the beginning of 1941, um, when they were trying to get into the Enigma machine. The Enigma machine came in two different versions. The first one that was introduced was called the three-rotor. And the three-rotor, the odds of getting into a three-rotor without any captured material to help you cheat, if you will, was about 150 million, million, million to one, kind of like winning the 649 every single day, every single week for 150 straight years. <laughs> so you can imagine uh, how difficult it was. And one of the reasons why capturing material was absolutely primordial for breaking into this. So what they were doing was they decided, look, we have to get into the areas that will give us this information. And so the two areas would be obviously ships, and the other one would be naval headquarters, where these machines and all of their key sheets and code books associated with the machines were kept. So there was two ways of doing it. You could either take on a ship at sea if it was isolated, because the last thing you wanted it to have were any witnesses around. And the other thing, of course, um, was to raid ports. Because not only would you get the ships at berths in the harbors, but you would also get a naval headquarters that was either in the harbor or very close by. So these were both considered to be the pot of gold, if you will. And that's one of the reasons why we end up at Dieppe. Um, the British had been doing this, like I said, from 1941, and they had great success doing this. As a matter of fact, they started up in Norway. And they actually put on two raids in Norway, which were highly successful. And then they had some luck at sea as well, pitching material off ships. And then the Germans upped the ante. The Germans kind of, you know, they, they, they kind of suspected something was up, but they weren't exactly sure what. But in um, 1942, they ended up introducing a new, four a new uh, Enigma machine, which was called a four-rotor machine. And so basically take the 150 million, 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 million to one and multiply that by another 26. So the odds of actually breaking into that without any captured material, and I had to look this number up because I didn't know it existed, was 94 septillion to one. <laughs> so we're talking about, yeah, we're talking about some of the, one of the greatest feats. As a matter of fact, I think, you know, something like, I, just a new report came out recently which said, uh, I think the odds were greater of, uh, 
it had to do with the atom. There was, <laughs> the atom was was less complicated than the Enigma machine. Wow. This is what, yeah, which is fascinating when you think about it. But the British, as I mentioned, were putting on these raids in 1941, and this is the other big aha moment, was the fact that they were developing or had developed an actual policy for this. They had a playbook. They had a doctrine. And it was all about making sure that you surprised your enemy, that you hit him with suppressive uh, firepower, not destructive, because even though you didn't mind killing him, you didn't want to destroy the material you were coming after. And the idea was to close on your opponent very quickly before he had a chance to destroy the material and then capture it. And once you captured it, then you had to be able to get it out real quick and get it back to um, England or Bletchley Park where they would do the code breaking. But more importantly, you had to create a cover so the Germans never suspected that you had captured the material you were coming after. So this is why right in 1941, they decided to uh, do these pinch operations as part of commando operations. So when the commando operation was over and they walked off with the gold, if you will, um, they could then say, well, you know, we were up in Norway because we were trying to knock out a, uh, a vitamin plant. Because, you know, U-boat crews, they need vitamins underneath the ocean, you know. <laughs> and so they were, or they were saying we were doing it for, you know, for propaganda purposes or to aid the Russians or whatever else. Anything that would deflect the Germans. And like I said, at first, this, you know, when I was reading this years ago, I thought, no way. This, this, it sounds too conspiratorial. It sounded, you know, bizarre and outlandish. But when um, I was nearing the end of my research, I actually reached out to the British government. I reached out to the successor of Bletchley Park, which is now known as GCHQ, Government Communication Headquarters. They're the ones who do the code breaking in this day and age. And I reached out to their archivist. And I wrote a, I think it was a five-page email. And I put everything down on the five-page email. I said, look, this is what I could prove. Here's the direct evidence, the indirect evidence. Here's what I suspect. Can you confirm, deny, refute, etc." And he got back to me within 24 hours. And he said, you're not going to believe this. He said, we have some stuff in the pipeline that we were going to release. We were going to declassify in the next two or three years. But he said, you need to see these now. And he sent them to me. And this was... Uh, paperwork uh, all about the policy that I just told you about. And for me, that sealed the deal. It wasn't just a question of what it looked like, but now I had the paperwork in hand to prove that this is what the British had been doing. I'm just going to step in here for a minute, David, and remind you, if you're listening to a Remembrance Day special on the Rock 98.5, and I'm speaking to David O'Keefe, and uh, the topic is uh, Dieppe, and uh, David finding out w- really why the Brits and the Allies uh, tried to carry out the app. David, uh, you were discussing, yeah, the, the pinch raids, uh, and you, you describe it in quite detail in your book. Uh, again, just outline a few of the, the, the bigger pinch raids that the Brits did to before they did the app. Well, they went to up to Norway twice. As a matter of fact, the first one was what they called the first Lofoten raid, which was in March of 1941, and they were quite successful. They were able to capture um, code books and cipher tables that were absolutely crucial for men like Alan Turing from the imitation game to actually do his work. 
And then um, they decided to shift gears a little bit, and there was a very bright uh, intelligence analyst at uh, Bletchley Park by the name of Sir Harry Hinsley, who would go on to fame as a historian. As a matter of fact, he wrote the official history of British intelligence in World War II. And he was the one who noted that um, the Bismarck, when the Bismarck went out and sorted into the North Atlantic, it didn't just go alone. There was a whole series of support vessels, auxiliary vessels that went out with it, whether it be weather trawlers, whether it be supply ships, and these were dotted throughout the North Atlantic to basically support the Bismarck. Uh, of course, the Bismarck never made it there, but that was the plan. Each one of these ships held an Enigma machine and all the code and cipher material that Bletchley Park desperately needed. So when, H- when Hinsley pointed this out, British Navy then went to work. And so in the middle of the Atlantic, where you could not, you know, no one was around to witness anything for the most part, um, they would basically go after small little weather trawlers. So basically, you know, ships no bigger than a small house. And to do it, and this was the key, to do it and make it look like it was incidental contact as opposed to intentionally going after them, they sent a disproportionate amount of force. So in other words, you can imagine what it would take to take out a tiny trawler. Well, they sent a force of three destroyers and two cruisers. So it's it's a concept. Yeah, it's a concept that they actually called cracking a walnut with a sledgehammer. This is what they called it, the sledgehammer to a nut approach. In other words, there was so much force put onto this that no German intelligence analyst in his right mind would ever conclude that this was intentional, that it was just purely accidental that this cruiser and destroyer force stumbled across this, um, you know, this particular vessel, and that's why the vessel went missing. So the British, what they were doing is creating in this pinch policy all different forms of deception and cover to mislead the Germans as to what their real intent was. So they started that up in Norway on land when they were doing amphibious operations. Then they took it to sea for individual vessels, and then they went back to Norway again in December of 1941 when they knew that the Germans were about to introduce a four-rotor, and they decided they were four-rotor Enigma, and they were going to take a chance. Um, It was very successful with anything to do with the three-rotor, but it came up empty with the four-rotor. So they ended up putting more operations on, including some of the most famous operations, commando operations, like the raid at Saint-Nazaire, which is considered to be one of the greatest raids of all time. This is extremely daring, where the uh, uh, combined operations under Mount Bat ended up ramming an explosive-laden destroyer into the dry dock in uh, Saint-Nazaire Harbor. And then it was on a time fuse, and it detonated um, about 24 hours later. But at the same time, they were also landing commandos into the U-boat base, trying desperately to get anything and everything to do with the Enigma and get it out. Unfortunately, as much as it was very successful when it came to blowing up you know, the, the, the dry dock uh, that was in the area, um, they didn't come away with any of the material they needed. And so there were a couple of other operations on the west coast of France that were either attempted or aborted, but all of them came up empty. And so as a result, the stakes uh, became extremely high, uh, particularly in February 1942, when the German U-boats 
started using the four-rotor uh, Enigma, and suddenly Bletchley Park couldn't find them anymore. And sinkings of merchant ships skyrocketed. And, of course, there was a, a potential strategic um, a disaster that they were hoping to avoid because the United States of America had just come into the war. And even though you think the war is won when the U.S. comes in, well, you're not going to be able to win the war if you can't get the oil, the manpower, the tanks, the aircraft, and all the weapons you need and supplies over to the battlefields because the U-boats are sinking your ships. So the precursor to anything, including a second front, to supplying the Russians to basically, you know, um, uh, prosecuting your strategic objectives and going after the Germans is all predicated by controlling the sea lanes. If you can't do that, you're not going to win the war. And at that particular point, the ability to locate U-boats and to sink them um, was basically coming down to the ability of the Allies to penetrate their codes, read their messages, and then locate them, hunt them down, and kill them. And that was the idea. So, David, on the the Dieppe raid, then uh, the, the 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 real goal was to go and get the four rotor machine. Uh, was was there any chance of success? Well, it, it, I suppose it depends how you look at it. I mean, I'm very critical of the plan in my book. Um, what was happening was the earlier pinch rates, for the most part, were very successful tactically. In other words, they'd been able to reach their objectives for the most part, even though they came away empty-handed. The, you know, they were relatively uh, small rates compared to DF. DF was starting to get bigger. But when Mountbatten took over combined operations, Lord Louis Mountbatten, um, he brought with him his personality, which was filled with arrogance, filled with hubris, and unfortunately, um, combined operations took on that type of attitude. So even though there was criticism from within their own planning staff to say, look, you know, um, the plan may not be the best. I understand what we're going after, but this might be, not be the best method for carrying it out. Mountbatten was relatively flippant, I, I would say, uh, when it came to the planning process, um, because basically he had his eyes on the prize. So it's it's difficult to say whether they could or couldn't, but all I know is on the day itself, they got very, very close. As a matter of fact, not only was this special unit that was made up of Royal Marine Commandos, um, not only do they get close, but also the Canadians. The Canadians who were on the raid, in particular the Essex Scottish Regiment and the Calgary Tanks, uh, plus the Canadian engineers, were all part of this pinch operation. Um, the men in the Essex Scottish got about, depending on which account you look at, uh, probably a stone's throw away from reaching their target in the harbor. And, um, you know, whether they would have been able to get in, whether whether they'd be able to you know, silence the German defenses, then grab the material and get out, that obviously is, you know, we'll never know. Um, but they did get very, very close. I mean, really, it's in football terms, they got to the goal line. They got to the goal line, and they were stopped. David O'Keefe is the author of One Day in August, The Allied Failed World War II Attack on Dieppe, France. The book published by HarperCollins is available at bookstores and libraries. David O'Keefe lives in Montreal, where he teaches, writes, 
and makes war-related documentaries. This is Remembrance Day 2019 on The Rock. Joyce Gunn Anaka remembers. The World War II military career for Joyce Gunn of Good Spirit Lake, northwest of Yorkton, shall we say, sprang from a spotty beginning. Having signed on as a quack, Canadian Women's Army Corps of World War II. We went by train from Regina to Vermilion to take our basic training. Um, uh, just a few days, we were up on the third floor, a few days, and all in a big dorm room. A few days after we got there, guess who came down with German measles? Oh, dear. <laughs> I was put into sick bay. They were quarantined. They had to use the fire escape to go back and forth for meals and everything else. <laughs> I don't think I was very popular. But one of the first things the new secretary in training had to learn, and this was the quack's prayer. I fight with files and the ink and pen at each new job I find. I have no gun. You see, I'm Jess, the girl he left behind. May I be strong enough to face the little things I do. May I be quick and always there. May I be always true. Help me to tread the unknown path with head held ever high. Teach me to do the hardest tasks and never question why. May I be strong to win and yet more kind and more sincere. Give me the faith to fight for what I hold to be most dear. Make me a soldier, strong and true, stalwart of heart and mind. But underneath, God let me stay, the girl he left behind. If in today's world, it would seem kind of corny. For a lot of the girls, it was very true. A lot of them had brothers. They had uh, boyfriends and that in the service. And they listened to the news and I think kept their fingers crossed and just hoped that everything went well. Yeah. The Gunn family of the 1940s lived on the peaceful south shore of Good Spirit Lake, northwest of Yorkton, and Joyce signed up because... It wasn't very hard um, a decision. My dad had been in uh, the Boer War and the First World War and had been a prisoner of war, so I guess I always grew up with more or less a military background or military history in the in the family and my mother's brothers in England had also, you know, served in the in the First World War. So you're in the army, Joyce. Now what? Well, we had to take basic joined up in in um Regina and then there wasn't a a course being held at the basic training camp in, in Vermilion. So we spent a month in uh the barracks in Regina, uh and we did odd jobs. We set up chairs for uh, military shows that came in and did other things and did a little bit of training. And then we went to Vermilion for uh, about a month of training. And then from there, we were sent to various courses and that. What sort of training? What were you being trained to do? Uh, because I had taken a, a couple of months of uh, a business course here in Yorkton, uh, they decided I should be a typist. So I was sent to a clerk's course in Winnipeg, and then a steno course in Saskatoon. What did you think of that? It was very good, except in Winnipeg, we went to night school. We didn't. We stayed in, in what used to be the, the German consul's home on Wellington Crescent, a very nice part of Winnipeg, so we thoroughly enjoyed being just right on the river. That's rather ironic. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> very much so. But we enjoyed it. But the thing was... 
we didn't take our course until after uh, the regular classes were over at, um, and I believe it was Gordon Bell High School. So we didn't go to school until 4 o'clock in the afternoon, so we worked until about 10 or so at night hmm. and then came came back, and then there were always somebody that had to be on what they called picket duty. You had to wander through the house and, and just make sure everything was all right during the night, so you'd have a two-hour shift of that. So, but then, And you were being trained to be secretaries? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, at that time, we just we were just typists at that okay, time, typists, right. and and general business, uh, you know, army uh, rituals. Did you expect that at some point you might be sent overseas? Did that ever enter the picture? Or I should say, not really expected for most of us because most of us had joined up at the age of eighteen, and at that time you were there were twenty one before they would send them overseas. And the army life for Joyce Gunn? Interesting, because we were. About a mile out of the actual town of Billy, uh or I guess you could call it a town in those days. So we were out of town at what at that before that had been the agricultural college. So it was a do- older buildings than that, and that was interesting. And then we went, as I say, we went from there. Those of us that were sent to the clerk's course, we went to this very elaborate house in Winnipeg. And then when we went to Saskatoon, those of us went for the steno course, we ended up in what was uh, the old uh, badminton club. Hmm. We got in there late in the evening, and then we were in a, a big dormitory with all these bunks and that. And we got in quite late, went to bed, and then I remember we, those of us that we knew that Early the next morning, I, th- I think most of us woke up and thought to ourselves, what on earth was that? It turned out that the badminton club wall seemed to be part of the fence again, uh, along the railroad track. <laughs> so the yard engines would start up at about that time of the morning, and they always seemed to go just about as far as our barracks and then turn around and go back. <laughs> Not only that... But often for our meals, uh, we had um, uh, a, a pudding, uh, sort of a mer- not a meringue. I think they called it, our our thing for it was carte blanche. <laughs> I, that was not the way we it was pronounced, but that's the way we pronounced it. But anyway, it was uh, a very light color, and it was set out on the table before the meal. And by the time you sat down for the meal, if a few trains had gone by, you had bits of soot all over the top of the of the pudding. <laughs> so that was one of the one of the more interesting yeah. things. So were you also being given a, a traditional military training like marching and so forth? Yes, definitely. We uh, we, did, we took part in in uh, drills every day. And from Saskatoon, you went to. I when I I I had said that when you finish your course, you're giving an you're given an option of where you would like to be posted. So coming from living near a lake, I thought it would be nice to be back on the water again. So I asked for either Atlantic or Pacific Command, and it wasn't too bad. I got I got sent to the uh, the depot in in. Um, Toronto, right on Lake Ontario. <laughs> and so was that when you actually were employed uh, with your secretarial talents? 
yes, I worked in officer personnel. We processed the officers being uh, transferred, and a lot of them coming back from overseas at that time. Did you did you enjoy your stay in Toronto? Very much. Mm-hmm. I, I I was one of those fortunate people that I enjoyed wherever I was. It was always interesting. There were new people to meet and new things to do, and I I enjoyed my time mm-hmm. in Toronto. So were you ever homesick? Uh, no, that was no. something I, I never was. I was. I think life was just too interesting. <laughs> so, were you there until the end of the war? Uh, yes, and after it, we were still processing uh, a lot of the men coming back from overseas because, being in the um, the old uh, Canadian uh, National Exhibition Grounds, there they had all the army, you know, coming back. A lot of the army coming back through there. So a lot of the girls were still working in various offices around there, processing the the homecoming troops. What were your emotions? Uh, what did it feel like at the at the end of the war? Oh, it it it, it was just great. We always had a little ceremony, you know, to sort of celebrate. And then I remember we went downtown in Toronto and watched everybody else celebrate and. Um, it, it was just it was just a great feeling, mm. and I, I'm sure for a lot of the the girls and that that had relatives and that uh, involved in the services, it was just a great relief too. Mm. So you were young women in Toronto. Did you go out on nightlife? Uh, can I put it in that term? <laughs> uh, not very many of them uh, did. It seemed as though by the time they'd put in the day's work and that, it was much easier to just sit around in, in the, the sort of game, not the games room, but more the meeting room and just sit around. Final thoughts from Joyce Gunn and Aka on the life of an army typist. So did you continue to have, let's say, a connection to the military in any way uh, post-war? Uh, not really. I got involved in uh, after I'd uh, come home and that, I'd, and got involved. My dad died just a year later, so I ended up by, you know, t- sort of taking over his work at the lake there. So um, I never did get involved in the, you know, much in the military. So was was that farming work? Uh, no, he had a summer resort, post office, country store, and kept. Um, oh, a couple of head of cattle and that, and some sheep and horses and that, so became sort of a jack of all trades. Hmm. So when you look back now, uh, uh, it's it's really with uh, with pretty positive thoughts, really. The experience. Could I? Do, am I reading it right? Um, definitely, Jack. You know, I I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think it was a good experience. It, it uh, you met a lot of people, you saw a lot of places, and um, hopefully you learned a lot of things. By the 1960s, the provincial government wanted to place a park where Joyce Gunn was raised. It's now the iconic Good Spirit Provincial Park, including one of the world's finest beaches by many people accounts. Eventually, Joyce and her husband, Bill Anaka, lived on the site, remained avid natural historians, and worked for the park. Bill is now deceased, but as an active 93-year-old, Joyce lives in Yorkton, where twice a week she drives herself to Aquasize. Always near the water, that girl. Thank you, Joyce, for your service to our wartime Canada. 
And here's another young woman with an interest in World War conflicts. Brittany Johnson of Yorkton has traveled to World War I and II battlefields on several occasions. This year with her husband, Scott, they visited the famous Vimy Ridge, which created a lasting impact. Little did I know that by visiting these new locations, it would fill my heart with pride and gratitude, as well as allow me to return to Canada with a deeper sense of understanding, along with the desire to share the stories of our heroes with both young and old. Brittany, by the way, was speaking at the Legion Remembrance Day tea last week. Seeing the scars of war still present on the pockmarked land, in the form of mine craters and shell holes, now cloaked with a perfect carpet of green grass covering the land as if laying it to rest, helped me try to imagine the magnitude of what had happened in this place as our Canadian soldiers crossed no man's land, sacrificing everything for our freedom, marching their way into history. Brittany has become a Legion member and is working as a volunteer cataloging artifacts for the Yorkton Legion branch and other work. I do feel that all who visit these special places will return with a deeper understanding of the importance for peace, desire for change, gratitude for our heroes, and a newfound pride for being a Canadian, lest we forget. Following her presentation to the Legion Tea, we asked Brittany Johnson about her late grandfather, Fred Budnerick of Yorkton. Who was Fred Budnerick? So Fred Budnerick was my grandfather. Mm -hmm. uh, he passed away two years ago, and uh, he was a veteran. He served during World War II, although he never went overseas. He did serve with the Army, and he was a gunner. Um, he did lots of guard duty in Victoria and bridge duty, guard duty. Um, so he served majority of his time in B.C. Mm. So where did he grow up? He's from Hampton, Saskatchewan, mm -hmm. so just north of Yorkton. Yeah. Farm boy. Farm boy, yeah. yeah. And uh, he enlisted in the Army. Um, I have the date written down. Yeah. Uh, and then completed his training in Regina, I believe. Okay. Yeah. So he was basically a peacetime soldier? Uh, no, because it was during during oh, the war. Okay. Yeah, it right. was during the war. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. then he was discharged due to medical reasons, um, and I have the date on that as well. Yeah. But. So, uh, as your grandpa, what are your personal memories? Uh, grandpas always have special things going on. So many. <laughs> yeah, I was privileged to spend my majority of my life with him up to this point. Um, he always told great stories, and um, he always told great stories of the war and his yeah. time with the army and um, how important it was for him to serve and how he always felt that all young people should serve time with the military mm. yeah so uh, did that influence you to become a legion member yes and i wish i would have done it sooner but <laughs> um still better late than never and yeah. uh, i think he'd be pretty proud yeah. so uh, the uh, this this function here today uh it's kind of a uh, it's a smaller group than used to gather at Remembrance Day. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, a lot more intimate. Um, it's uh, a really nice tradition that they keep going from year to year. They also do one near D-Day as well um, for any remaining veterans or widows. Or So lots of the seniors are able to come out here for a couple of hours just for good fellowship and to listen to some stories. Hmm. I bet you get asked the question a lot of well, why do we continue to do this? It's so important, especially in our world today. Yeah. There's so so much hate still in the world, and um, 
there's lots it present that's dividing us as uh, as human beings yeah. and it needs to stop so reflecting on the on the things that happened so many years ago as to why we have the kind of country that we have is extremely important and that these people gave their lives for our freedom it's so much bigger than we are <laughs> so uh, Fred uh, your your grandpa uh, did he probably had friends that went overseas yes he often spoke of men that um went over and fought at normandy and yeah. landed on juno beach and when i went to normandy my first time guido was still alive so i showed him pictures and he asked me if i saw certain names on on crosses and there's so many i should have wrote down these names that he wanted me to look for before uh, i left yeah and then with him gone now i i can't get that information from him so it's too bad but i'm still happy that i was able to go back a second time so that was probably an emotional journey for you extremely there's so many things there that move you to tears from the visitor center reading letters from soldiers to family back home um specifically the one that really got me was our uh, our very small uh center at dieppe a museum dedicated to the Canadians in an old theater. It's very small, but there was a lot of really good information in there and lots of really moving artifacts. Brittany Johnson of Yorkton paying tribute to her late grandfather, Fred Budnerick. She's now a Royal Canadian Legion member. Although much has been written about what's been referred to as the Northwest Rebellion of 1885, or as some would call it, the Trouble, a Yorkton genealogist with a particular interest in the history of the prairies recently wrote a book about the eventual surrender of Louis Riel. That was after the Battle of Batoche. So for a little different take on Saskatchewan history, we asked author P. Hatch a question about who should be remembered on November 11th. His answer later. First of all, uh, one of the final episodes that you deal with in your book was the apprehension of Louis Riel, uh, if that's the proper term. Now, there are three different people that could lay claim to that. Could you just explain how that came about and how you went about sorting that out? Uh, well... They all have a claim, a legitimate claim, and uh, it's just a question of who really had a leading role in that trio. Uh, so there's no doubt about the fact that all three of them were together when they apprehended Riel. Uh, but uh, I noticed that there's a lot of uh, contradictions between what was reported by Robert Armstrong or Mud Eater and another of the scouts, uh, Tom Uri. Uh, and who is the third? Uh, the third is William Deal. And he doesn't really get involved in making any kind of claims, but uh, his descriptions of what happened at that time are reported in newspapers and also in a document that he uh, produced down the road somewhere. And so just to explain, these three men were scouts in General Middleton's forces at the, let's call it conflict at Batoche? That's correct. Yeah. So how did you go about sorting that out in your research? Were the newspapers your primary source? Uh, yes, I think they were, because uh, you really want to get the immediate uh, words of these people who were involved, and that would have been the newspaper reporters right at the moment when Riel was apprehended. So I took that as the primary uh, source of information of where you could get the most untainted reports of that event. 
Uh, but I also uh, read various books. There were histories written back in 1885 about the event, but they basically were based on the newspaper reports. Uh, and also the memoir of this Marider and Tom Uri's father gave lengthy descriptions of his son's activities too. So I relied on those two and other subsidiary sort of events that were described. Yeah. Now, Tom Uri, as I recall, he was from the Prince Albert area? Yes. Uh, eventually, he ended up in the Klondike uh, when the gold rush came, but uh, he uh, lived in the Prince Albert area for a good time. Right. So, and the man that we're referring to as Mud Eater, he, he, used, a, he used a Canadian name? Yes, uh, Robert Armstrong, and that's the only name you'll see in Canadian yeah. newspapers or history books. Um, but his original name was Erwin uh, Muddeater, and there's a lot of uh, stuff that wasn't reported about him or wasn't even known in Canadian history. And I guess the most sensational thing was that he wasn't a white American of British or Irish descent, as was reported in the newspapers of the time and in the history books. Uh, he was actually a first, the son of a First Nations chief, uh, a tribe in Oklahoma and Kansas called the Wyandots. Now, so uh, Robert Armstrong, just to sort of uh, help with the background, he actually, uh, previously he'd been a buffalo hunter and that type of thing? Yes, he spent uh, about a decade, I think, following the buffalo herds in various parts of the USA and working his way up to Montana for the last herds before they were extinguished. And he did other things, but he's basically lived a life, the kind of life you'd see in Western movies, all kinds of uh, crazy things going on. So he came to what we now call Canada, possibly as the result of one of his, shall I say, incidents uh, uh, in what is now the USA? Yes, according to his granddaughter, he had either shot and injured somebody or had killed somebody in Montana, and then he came to Canada, changed his name, and started a new, different life. And it was more or less via the granddaughter, am I correct, that you ended up seeing uh, Mud Eater's uh, manuscript or uh, his memoirs? Yes, apparently in 1920 or so, Mud Eater wrote his memoirs, of course not revealing that he was Mud Eater, he still concealed his background. And he was using his uh, alias or Canadian name? That's right, yeah. Robert Armstrong yeah. is what he was using. And uh, I guess this manuscript was never published, it was handed down from uh, family members to family members, and his granddaughter who lives in California eventually got hold of his manuscript from his from her mother who was a daughter of Robert Armstrong but it's my next door neighbor who once told me that uh, his great grandfather was Robert Armstrong and that's really how I found out about his story and he did have a copy a photocopy of what his I guess great aunt you would call it in California had and when I had a look at that uh, I just was fascinated with his life story and wanted to see if I can validate some of his claims. And uh, But it was also from the lady in California that I learned the fact that his real name was Mud Eater. So it, it was basically just his family and perhaps some close friends that knew about that name. So that really 
got me investigating his story. Obviously, the uh, the 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 reporters at the time of the uh, the incident at Batash and so forth, they apparently didn't know much about his background, if any. Not at all. Yeah. They basically knew he was from the USA. Okay. So, John, uh, you obviously got excited when you saw this uh, this manuscript. Uh, so, was it an instant decision that you were going to go ahead and write this book? No, not at all. <laughs> but uh, I, I thought that it's you know, it's a primary source. Someone that was on the scene in 1885 was involved in this. Uh, important event in Canadian history. Uh, so I felt his story should be at least known or his memoir should be given to an archive or something like that. But the more I studied you know, about those events that he describes, the more interested I got to reveal the fact that he had concealed so much about his uh, personality and uh, activities. So that's when I thought his story should be told because it was very incomplete as it stood. Yeah, he sounds like kind of a rough and ready character. So uh, follow, uh, in years later then, uh, what became of Robert Armstrong? Can you explain that? Well, after the resistance of 1885, he still lived in the Prince Albert area. His family moved to Rostern, and it's a little indeterminate how long he actually was in Rostern, but because of some domestic events or whatever, uh, he took his two oldest daughters and moved to Oklahoma. He had been there, in fact, his lost touch with his family for decades, but he returned to Oklahoma where his brother uh, was still living. And he stayed there for 10 years, and I think he just did odd jobs, but uh, getting back to Prince Albert, yeah. he worked as a painter. He would paint houses and do things like that, and I believe he did some of that in Oklahoma. And then in 19, oh, I forget, um, about 1913, I think, or perhaps sooner, I'd have to look up yeah. the dates, I've forgotten them. That's fine. Uh, he returned to Calgary, where his oldest daughter was living, and he lived with his oldest daughter for a while, and then he moved to Glyken, Alberta, uh, for a number of years, and eventually, about a year before he died, he moved with his daughter to California. So, uh, the, again, so again, the, at some point in there, he had written a memoir that you eventually acquired. That's right. He wrote it in 1920. He had showed it to several reporters, and they sort of summarized it in a, say, two-page article in one or two papers, but it was never uh, published. So, John, in your book, uh, you relate some of the conversations as you took them from the newspaper accounts, and it seems like uh, 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 Louis Riel, uh, his biggest concern was that he get a fair trial. Yes, and also immediately his biggest concern was that he was They shot. didn't get shot, yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly correct. Yeah. That's the question he asked uh, the scouts when they encountered him. Yeah. Now, I know this isn't part of your book, but is it fair for me to ask you, do you think Louis Riel got a fair trial? Do you have an answer to that question? No, I, I agree with Armstrong, who later reported that uh, he shouldn't have been hanged. 
I think it's just unjustified. Um, it's a complex question, but uh, no, I, I don't see that uh, he got what we would call a fair trial. The John P. Hatch book is available. It's called Mud Eater, published by University of Regina Press. It's available online or at Cole's Books in Yorkton, for example. John P. Hatch is a Yorkton resident. His answer to my question as to whether we should include other soldiers or Louis Rail's fighters from the last major military engagement on Canadian soil at Batoche, Saskatchewan, 1885. It seems that uh, 1885, the, the resistance at Batoche, uh, was one of the last major armed conflicts, if I can put it in those terms, in Canada. Uh, do you think it's something that we should uh, remember on Remembrance Day? That's a most unusual question, but a valid one. I've never thought about it, so I can't give you an informed opinion, but the, you've got me thinking. That's all I could say. <laughs> now, historian David O'Keefe, whom we heard from earlier, told me in his opinion there are no rules about remembrance, and he thinks people who want to hold a formal remembrance should be welcome to do it. Our final segment of Remembrance 2019 on the Rock, a different look at wartime, the people who rush to danger. That's the latest book by historian Ted Barris. In his 19th book, Barris recognizes the role of battlefield medics, whom, as Ted says, while everyone else is running for cover, medics run to danger. Ted Barris, your book, Rush to Danger, is about medics. Now, your father was a medic. Uh, I guess with the, in the in the U.S. forces, maybe just kind of set it up for us by by explaining uh, a little bit about his story. Sure, um, your listeners will probably your listeners of a certain age will probably remember the name Alex Barris. My father was very well known across the country as a broadcaster and a journalist, an author. Uh, he was actually born in New York City in 1922, so he became of age in the United States to serve his country in 1942 when the Americans were at war. And uh, growing up in New York City and growing up in a very pacifist family, my dad was not uh, exposed to weapons to a great degree. And so when he went to the draft office to you know, essentially respond to the draft notice, he was quite prepared to serve, but he wasn't particularly eager to carry a weapon. I don't think he was a conscientious objector, but he sort of they said to him, "What do you want to do?" And they said he said to them, "What do you need?" And they said, "We need medics." So Dad said, "Fine," and they sent him off to medical training in Kansas in uh, the winter of 19. 19- and he no sooner landed in Kansas when he came down with a really violent case of pneumonia, nearly killed him in the in the first months he was there. And then he starts to train as a medic, as they all did. And, and my dad would be the first to tell you that uh, he never took himself seriously as a, any anyone capable of handling medical things. I mean, he learned anatomy and first aid, but the real test was when the rubber hit the road when he was finally in Europe uh, in the Battle of the Bulge in late 1944-45, uh, pushing the Germans back into Germany through the coldest winter of the war with literally nothing but his... Uh, creativity and innovation as a as a medic on on the spot dealing with everything from frostbite to you know uh, lost limbs to uh, horrible gashes from shrapnel and that sort of thing and that's when he learned how to be a medic and then fortunately came home at the end of the war without a scratch and then went back into 
sort of civilian life, uh, found that he had uh, uh, enjoyed the, the craft and the profession of writing, and uh, that drew him to Canada in, in 1948, and bingo, I was born the next year after he married my mom in 48. So his very first uh, gig, if I can put it in those terms, was at one of the most famous battles. Yes, it, it wasn't supposed to be that way. When right. he landed in France, his his uh, division, which was the 94th Infantry Division, one of Patton's armies or divisions, was actually a, a, originally assigned to Western France, to Brittany. Their job, after the Allies were sweeping through France, liberating Paris and on to Antwerp in uh, the fall of 1944, um, Dad was... Uh, off in Western Brittany, and essentially they were keeping two armies, two German armies, at Saint-Nazaire and Lorient, penned in because they were guarding the submarine pens. And so Dad's division's job was simply to keep these guys from going anywhere, and that's what he was doing. And he'd, he'd have spent the war there doing nothing, except that suddenly he was in Paris in the middle of December, uh, around the 15th or 16th, he got on a leave with some of his medical buddies, and they went out for an evening, came back to the place they were billeted at in Paris, and the place was going crazy. Everybody's running around, and Dad said, what the hell's the matter here? And the, somebody said to him, Sergeant, don't you know what's happened? And he said, no. Apparently, that's when the Battle of the Bulge began, because the Germans had broken out in the Ardennes. And so Dad's division was transferred from the sleepy part of Brittany out of the war completely, right into the worst battle the Americans encountered in the war from January to March of 1945, pushing the Germans back into the fatherland. So uh, his baptism under fire was literally baptism under fire. It was. Um, the climax of his experience, uh, if I'm to read the citation that he was awarded in February of 1945 was as they crossed the border into Germany, Dad was positioned at a small village called Borg in front of a place called Camp Holtz Woods, which looked as innocuous, Jack, as a Saskatchewan bluff would in the middle of wintertime. Nothing there, nothing particularly obvious, just a bunch of snow and some trees, and the Americans marched into one of the biggest traps they had encountered moving eastward because uh, it was just bristling with dragons, teeth, concrete obstructions, uh, bunkers, booby traps, mines, anti-tank ditches, everything to prevent the Americans from penetrating Germany. And in the roughly in the 12 hours that Dad faced, he and his medical crew faced the result of the battle at that location, they were treating a wounded man every six minutes. Between 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. on the 10th of February, they handled 119 wounded men, and it continued like that for days. Wow. So uh, can you tell us, uh, uh, Ted, uh, I mean, we've all seen the movies and the guys yelling for medic and so forth, uh, and, and your book is called Rush to Danger. So help us understand what, what those guys were going through. Well, the, the the reason that it's called rush to danger is that everybody else was running away from the danger and the medics were running toward it. That was their job. And what I tried to do in my interviewing and researching of this book, and, and it doesn't just begin and end with my dad's story. My dad's story is the thread to the book. It's sort of like the backbone of it. Right. But I go all the way back to the U.S. Civil War where a man named Jonathan Letterman 
His version of rushing to danger was to come up with a field ambulance at the Battle of Fredericksburg in 1862, one of the bloodiest battles in the war to that point. And he realizes that the, the wounded are being treated abysmally, and he comes up with the first field ambulance. And his, his story is extraordinary. Then I go through, um, you know, on through the, uh, the uprising of Riel in, in 1885 and Middleton's army there. There were medics there who were essentially uh, under a man named Thomas Roddick, and his job was the same as Jonathan Letterman's, to make sure that the wounded were treated humanely and that they had the best medical care available. Doctors had come all the way from Montreal and Toronto with the militia, the Middleton's militia, and they were there serving the wounded at the Battle of Batoche, for example, in uh, May of, of 1885. And then on through the Great War and the Second World War and Korea and Vietnam and all the way up to Afghanistan and Iraq, where I interviewed uh, what are known as flight surgeons in the U.S. Air Force. These are guys who are harnessed into the back of Black Hawk helicopters, you know, these medevac helicopters. And they're harnessed in so that they can deal with a patient who's come into the, who's been medevaced out of a, a location where he or she's been wounded. And the patient is plunked down into a carousel in the back of the Black Hawk. And uh, this one guy I talked to, Dane Harden, could do everything in the back of the Black Hawk. Uh, all kinds of suction and intubation and um, IV, and he could even do surgeries of, of various sorts if he needed to, while this Black Hawk helicopter is screaming across the surface of the ground and in the air to get this guy to a, a, a hospital for more serious uh, surgical response. These guys are the people who rush to danger at 140 miles an hour. That's that's the, the wide range of, of characters and men and women, and I, I bring a lot of great nurses' stories into the book as well. This is what they, they went through as they rushed to danger to save lives, not take them. Ted, just want to take you back to the incident at Batoche. Now, for example, uh, did, did they, these troops have actual field hospitals? Or? They did. They did. In fact, um, uh, I wasn't able to get images of them in the book because we ran out of space in the photo section, but there's an um, extraordinary um, painting I found which shows um, uh, medical officers and surgeons and orderlies dealing with the wounded at Batoche under canvas. And what's, what's interesting, what's remarkable, is that if you go to uh, images of the medics working in Korea or Vietnam, in some of the cases it's the same thing, and that's 100 years later, you know, essentially dealing with... Uh, medical uh, treating um, in the out of doors because often that was the cleanest air. That was where you could get the brightest light. And surgeons in the Great War, um, uh, one of the guys uh, whose story I got from Calgary, um, he was a, uh, a doctor and he worked outdoors because that's where the best light was uh, behind the lines. He was a medical officer and he was doing surgeries and uh, all kinds of uh, treatments uh, outdoors on a on a uh, a gurney that was exposed to the to the outdoors. Obviously, it was in in warmer weather, so that it wasn't uh, uncomfortable for the patient. But sometimes that was the best way to work. And I and I talked to um, um, I interviewed a guy with the uh, service corps who worked in in uh, at Kimpo Airport, just outside Seoul during the Korean War, and they lived outside and they worked outside with many of the of the uh, doctors who were attending the wounded. Ted Barris' book, Rush to Danger, is also published by HarperCollins, and it's in bookstores. This has been Remembrance 2019 on The Rock. Thanks for listening. I'm Jack Dawes. <laughs>